Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Epic Classroom Podcast. My name is Trevor Muir and I've been a middle and high school teacher as well as a teacher of future and current teachers and I love a good story. And I love to explore ways to help students live out great stories and for educators to thrive in their own. And that's what we talk about on this podcast. Whatever you teach or however you serve in schools, how can you lead a more impactful and dynamic and meaningful and epic classroom? All right, friends. Well, we are back. It's been a couple weeks since I dropped a podcast. Um, and so it is just good to be back at a microphone to uh, just to have this conversation. You are either driving right now or maybe you're working out or maybe that you're just you found a moment to just sit and listen and think or whatever you're doing. It's such a joy that we get to spend this this time together. What a time it is. I was just at a school recently down in Indiana and uh, I said something like, all right, everybody. So we have about 25, 30 days left of the school year. And like immediately the second grade teacher is like, we have 19 days and two hours left of the school year. And I mean, she knew it down to the hour. And that's usually kind of how it goes this time of year, at least if you're a teacher here in the States and you might have this upcoming sabbatical coming up, this this two, three month break from being a regular classroom teacher. And I know it, I'll be the first to recognize that summer break is not just a break for every teacher. This is the time where you not only reflect and, and, and hopefully recuperate from what a regular year of teaching has been, but then this last year, it's been a lot more than regular. But this is also the time where you go to professional development, where you're finding ways to expand and grow in your craft. This is also a time where you're planning and, and you're putting together projects or designing lessons or, or maybe you're doing continuing education and you're taking summer courses so you can, can keep your certificate or get a master's degree or whatever it is. Summer break is not just a complete clean break from work and, and being a teacher. But it is a change up, right? Like in, in 19 days and two hours or whatever it is from the time that you're listening to this, you will hopefully get to change what your routine looks like every day. And, and that might mean more time to yourself, more time to unplug, maybe a little less stress or a little less thinking. You know, that's always been my, th my thoughts and, and the way that I embrace summer vacation the most is I don't have to think as much. Obviously, I'm still thinking. I'm a dad and, and I do a lot of other things. And so there's lots and lots of thinking going on but not as much as when you're in the classroom. And, and, I, and I usually occupy that time where I'm not thinking as much um, with, with being outside more and doing some of the things that I love to do that I can't do when I'm working all the time in a school. And so my hope, before we dive into this episode, um, my hope for you is as you are counting down the days to that break, or maybe you are listening to this somewhere other than the United States and you don't have summer vacation or holiday coming up, whenever your next break is, um, I hope that you can find ways to thrive um, and enjoy yourself and continue to be challenged and not too overloaded as you approach a time where you are hopefully uh, 
allowed to not be super challenged and overloaded. So with all that being said, there are just a couple weeks left of the school year here, and uh, I bet you are ready for it because this has been a challenge. It has been a challenging year. It's been a challenging two years or in COVID time. Uh, I like to think of COVID years as dog years. So one COVID year is actually seven years of our lives. And so in the last 14 years of being an educator has been something else. You know, I was down at the school in Indiana with lots and lots of teachers in an auditorium. Um, and I asked for a show of hands, um, who here is a brand new teacher, like in their very first year in the classroom right now? And there was a lot of hands that went up uh, in the, the Chesterton School District. And, you know, and everybody kind of broke out in applause for them. And I thought it was a really beautiful moment that all of these other teachers would clap their hands and smile and look with some type of pride to these new teachers because there's this understanding in the room and I even called it out that it doesn't always look like this, right? Like teaching has always got its challenges and there's always struggles and there's always needs, things that cause us to adapt and find ways to pivot to make it work. That, that's always ever present in, in the teaching education profession. Um, but the circumstances that new teachers have entered this profession in um, are unlike what they're going to see the rest of their career. I mean, just from the social distancing to the disruption to the, the, the difficulties of communication or um, the, the, the amount of apathy we're f seeing from students as they transition from a virtual environment back to an in-person one, but it seems like they just unanimously forgot the rules and the expectations for being in school and all of these challenges have been so heavy for everyone, but but then you look at a new teacher and you're like, man, what a time to get into this profession. Uh, but then we got to take a moment and kind of point out the fact that, hey, if you still want to do this after the last year of your life or the last two years, if you were able to make it through this and you might have found ways to thrive in different ways, you are going to be in good shape the rest of the time because it won't always be like this. There's going to come a time, and, and maybe even if you're not a new teacher, you need to hear this. There will be a time where there's some more normalcy in your work, where there's not as much disruption, where some of those communications with parents aren't as difficult as they have been, or maybe engaging students doesn't feel like pulling teeth or ripping out your hair every time. There will be a return to that, and hopefully, if, if this is like every other good story that's ever happened, you won't, when we get to that sense of normalcy, you will be better than you were when, when things were disrupted in the first place because you don't get through a good story without growing from it, right? You, you don't overcome the obstacles and the challenges of the hero's journey without gaining something from it. And so I guess the hope is found in the fact that when we do get back to normalcy, which I think we're slowly approaching that. I'm knocking on wood on the wood desk that I'm sitting at right now. Um, but when we do get back to that, hopefully very soon, you're going to be a better educator because of it. And new teachers, you are going to be stronger than I could have ever hoped to be after my first year of teaching. I remember when I got done with my first year of teaching, I was just a mess. I remember I was tired and overwhelmed and thinking like, man, there were so many things I didn't do well this last year. And, and maybe that's how you feel after this last year, but you also have something special. You found this way to adapt and change and move with this really 
powerful current and now you can move with any current because there's going to be new ones throughout your time as a teacher, as an educator, whatever you do in schools. And so I just, uh, this is a little rant here. This isn't what I, was, what I was planning on talking about, but you know, when I get to go to schools and get to be with these teachers who have done so much in the last couple of years, it just fires me up. It just gets me motivated um, to get back in my own classrooms and get to be with more and more educators and just continue to be on this journey with you all. And as we, we, we strive to find ways to, to make our work dynamic and design learning experiences that are dynamic for students, for all of us to find success. And so anyway, I'm feeling pretty good about the state of things after spending time with some teachers. I'm also uh, constantly thinking about what can we learn from this time that we've been in, right? Like this isn't throwing a silver lining on things. This is just the reality that this has been a very challenging time. And it's like, man, if we get through all of this and we don't hit any sort of reset button, right? If we get to the other side of this pandemic and, and there's just no more disruption caused by COVID and we just go back to business as usual and we don't find ways to actually pivot and change the way education looks, man, what? a waste that would be. And so I want to start talking more about different ways that we can find to reset, to do things differently than we did beforehand, not because what we did beforehand wasn't working all the time. I think there's some things that need to be preserved that we need to hold on to as we continue to move forward, but more as a way of saying, okay, what do we need to hold on to that, that was working for us beforehand, but what did we discover in the midst of all of this disruption in the last two COVID years that needs to go by the wayside? What, what isn't working anymore? What's been revealed through all of this that, that, you know what? We don't need that anymore. Here's what we actually need. Here's what's most important. You know, I, I said student apathy a moment ago. I have asked lots and lots and lots of teachers from the internet to in-person when I'm, when I'm at schools and speaking, what's been the most challenging piece of teaching during a pandemic. And I'm telling you the unanimous answer is, well, I guess it's not unanimous if it's not everyone, but almost everyone says it's the challenge of engaging students. It's, it's student apathy. And it's like, yeah, that has been running rampant all over the place in all grade levels and all subject areas in every state and every country. I was with a group of teachers um, virtually in South Africa last week. Um, and, and I asked what, what's been the biggest challenge that you've, that you've faced in all of this. And, and these teachers in Durban, South Africa were telling me student apathy, the challenge of engaging students right now. And it's like, yeah, that is a universal struggle and, and yet, I'm guessing we have found some ways to engage students. Maybe not to the fullness that we want, but I bet you have found ways to engage students. It's like, all right, well then what did that? What made it work? What finally clicked with students? Those students who just didn't seem to want to put any effort or any work ethic into your class, but then you found those little glimmers of what actually cut through the mess and found ways to actually connect with them. What were those and how can we make sure that we continue to do them long after this pandemic is over. So the one that I want to talk about today on this podcast episode is our spaces in the classroom, the physical classroom space. Because I think sometimes we really need to rethink what the classroom space looks like. Um, if we really want to engage students here and now in the world and the time that we are currently in. And so a little backstory, when I started out as a teacher, 
I was very idealistic. Does that sound familiar to you? Right? Like I, I was that teacher that was like, I got into it. And, and I remember reading some really innovative boundary pushing books. And I had a professor who got me all fired up about the history of education, but then what needs to change and what's not working. And I was Mr. Idealism. And I, and my goal was I'm going to employ all of these strategies about pushing boundaries with my students. You know, I'm going to develop some innovative technology and set up my room in certain ways that are not like how it was before. I'm going to ditch the traditional for the innovative and I'm going to show how it works with my students and then hopefully that catches on with other teachers in the schools and, and maybe other schools will find out about it and the idea is that we are going to transgress the boundaries of education and do it differently and that's going to start in my classroom. And, and so I started out as a teacher with a burning passion to do things non traditionally, and I think this is a very common narrative for young and new teachers, which, by the way, I think is a great place to start. I think if you have a burning passion to do things in a way that are effective for students, what a great foundation for the rest of your time. And so, and, and we'll get into that a little bit in a moment, but one of the things that I really railed against as a brand new teacher was aligning desks and chairs in your classroom and tables into rows which is a pretty common thing for people to rail against in, in modern education, right? I was the guy who was saying like, you know what? And I remember learning this in college, the modern orientation of the classroom is based on this industrial model of education that was introduced over a hundred years ago. And essentially school was modeled after the factory life. And because most Americans left school at about the age of 14 and they had basic literacy and basic math. And then they left school and they went and spent the rest of their careers, the rest of their lives working in factories. And so therefore school needed to be a place that weeds the top students out so they can go and work in the white collar positions. But then the majority of students, they are going to, to be prepared to go work on assembly lines and factories. And so when you put desks in rows, what you're really doing is you're preparing students to go and stand in rows the, the rest of their lives. They, you need to be prepared to work in this orderly fashion. That's why we have school bells because factory bells let you know when your shift is up or when it's time to move to the next section of the assembly line or it's time to move what you're working on in the assembly line down to the next thing. You're triggered by bells. Well, let's put bells in the classroom so we can start preparing students for this occupation that they have. And there's a lot of other ties between factory life and school, and you can go and look it up. It's really fascinating to see the tie between those. But there's, this, there's a problem with this. Most people don't work on assembly lines in factories the way that they did 120 years ago. That's not what the workforce looks like anymore. You know, I, I think it's like 8% of people work in manufacturing in the United States, 8%, meaning 88%, or when I look at my good math, 92% don't work in factories, and yet they're still going to school within this factory model. And so you, you've got a factory-style school to prepare you for what? Working in assembly line? Well, most people don't do that. And even the people who do work in manufacturing don't work in the same way that they used to. There's so much more automation and engineering and, and, and just the, the rote nature of, of factory work doesn't exist in the same way that it used to, at least not in, in America. And yet school is still aligned that way. And so, man, I used to just put myself up on a pedestal and let everybody know 
what was wrong with this factory model. I would tell my students, I would tell parents at conferences. I would, I started to blog early on in my teaching career. I used to write blog posts about it. And I'd, um, I remember I gave a, in, in 2014, I think it was, I gave a TED talk at TEDx San Antonio. And one of the first things I did uh, during my 18 minute speech is I talked about how school is made for factories and uh, that's not necessary anymore. And that was a few years into my teaching, but this is something that burned in me for a while. I used to just rail against having rows in the classroom. Students shouldn't sit in rows, they should sit in groups, right? They should be collaborating and discussing and facing each other and reading each other's f facial expressions and reading body language, like, right? Students shouldn't be in rows. There's no benefit to rows. But then it didn't take me a long time into teaching. I mean, within the first few years, I noticed there was a problem because another thing that I really railed against was giving lectures, right? Teachers shouldn't do direct instruction anymore. It's ineffective. Students don't have di the discipline, the attention span to listen to you to go on and on about speaking um, or uh, whatever you're talking about. We need to learn by doing at all times. It should always be doing and never just listening. But uh, have you ever tried to explain a really complex piece of information without doing direct instruction? Yeah, or, or have you ever tried to give a, explain an idea that's really big? Like, have you ever tried to explain what the theme of a story is without being able to talk about it and give examples and tell stories? And no, I mean, I've learned through time that there is absolutely a place for direct instruction in the classroom, often actually. Now, there's best practices for giving lectures, and I'm going to do a whole podcast on that sometime soon, because I think that's something else we might have learned a little bit about during COVID. Um, but that there's absolutely a place for telling stories and sharing big ideas and, and, and using direct instruction and lectures in the classroom. And I found that they're really hard to do. It's hard to deliver a complex, big idea, which is sometimes 15 minutes of talking. Um, it, it, it can be really hard to do that when students are sitting in groups and half of the room is aligned or faced away from you. Um, or you can't see your students' faces, as that's something we've learned during COVID, how challenging it is virtually to not see uh, who your audience is and what they're, how they're reacting to what you're saying. Well, that's also challenging when students are sitting in groups and they inevitably turn away from you or they have to awkwardly turn to face you and because they feel awkward, they're not fully attentive to you. And, and so I learned pretty quickly that one of the best ways to orient your classroom when doing direct instruction, when delivering a lecture, when telling stories, is to have students focused on you, the teacher, right? This isn't to say that we always need to be the center point of the classroom, but sometimes we need to be. Sometimes we have the information and the best way for your students to get it is by you delivering it vocally, verbally, and so they need to face you. And one of the best, easiest ways to make that happen is to put their desks and tables in rows. <laughs> I learned that maybe my railing against rows is a little unfounded, at least when it comes to certain methods of pedagogy. It's at least when I'm trying to tell stories or lecture, I need them to sit in rows. It's a, rows. It's a lot easier 
when I can see them and I can use my facial expressions to, to deliver the teacher look and, and get them back on task, or I can see if they're not catching on to what I'm saying, I can readjust, I can move what I'm doing and hopefully get their attention back. That is so much easier when they are all facing me. And so saying that rows are universally bad is actually inaccurate. Sometimes rows are good. You know, sometimes if students are taking a test, and that's another thing, we can talk about tests some other time, but the reality is most of, most of us have to give students standardized tests. Well, guess what? It's a lot harder to cheat if all of the students are facing you. And again, that's a whole nother subject, but it's just to point out that there is value in having students sit in rows. Sometimes, <laughs> not all the time though, because the truth is I also want them to collaborate. I want them to learn to work together. Sometimes I want my students to discuss, and it's really hard to lead a really strong, vibrant discussion when students are just sitting in rows and they only have the people to their left or right to actually talk to. I mean, if they're sitting in an old desk, it can be hard to productively turn around and face the person behind them, but then also engage the person to their left or right of them. Rows are not really conducive for strong class discussion. It might be good for turn and talk, but I mean, sometimes the best discussions happen when there's three or four or five students together. Sometimes the best way to orient your room for a discussion is actually putting them into groups where they can face each other. Or, or maybe you're having your students do a project and it's really hands-on. Yeah, that might not work really well with rows because maybe they're working together at tables, but maybe you need to have a big table set up where they can do some hands-on work, like they're working on big poster boards or cutting out papers or doing something that's much more physical and needs space. One of the problems with rows is sometimes you have introverts in the classroom and they need time away from other people. They need space to breathe and process and not be crowded by people on their left and right. And so sometimes in the classroom, they, you need to have spaces where students can kind of escape the larger body of the room. And that doesn't work very well in rows. There's also a problem with rows sometimes that they're not very equitable. You know, there, there's absolutely privileged seating. And some students have been brought up to you go and sit in the front of the room because that's the best way to engage with the teacher and get the most out of the experience, which I agree in a classroom that has rows. When a student is sitting at the back of the room, the farthest point from the teacher orientation, they're in a, in a position where they might not get the maximized learning experience. It's not equitable in that way. And so if we put students at tables and there isn't a central location of the teacher, but that, that location actually can move and pivot and adjust and evolve based on the needs of what the class is looking like, well, then everyone is equal there. Everybody has an opportunity to fully engage with the class. So my point here is that rows are sometimes good and rows are sometimes not helpful for what you're trying to do in the classroom. This is why I'm a huge proponent for flexible seating. And, and when I mean flexible, chairs with wheels on the bottom of them and, and tables with wheels on them so that the classroom can adapt to the needs of the class. So that if you're saying, okay, we're gonna do a discussion today, let's all get into a big circle. All of a sudden, you can easily move the chairs and tables to adjust so where you can sit into a circle easily. Or, hey guys, we are going to do collaboration today. We're gonna to be sitting with our groups. Um, I want everybody to take the tables around you and we're gonna put them in uh, to this orientation and then we're gonna work from there. And, and so being flexible to do that is really, really helpful. It, it actually, it allows the setting 
to 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 match what the story is, right? Like the when you listen to a really good story or you watch a really good story. Let's take the Lion King for instance. The setting absolutely matters, right? Imagine if the Lion King existed, uh, if that story took place in New York City. Do you think it would have unfolded the same way? Do you think you would have learned the same amount about Simba and Hakuna Matata and the Pride Lands if it all took place in Manhattan? <laughs> I mean, probably not, right? That story has to take place on the savannas of Africa. That's how it unfolds. It's all about the beauty of the landscape and the natural fixtures and the canyon for the wildebeest and, and the jungle and, and the peacefulness and, and the fires. It has to take place in a specific spot. The setting matters for the story. And as I always say, what we want to do more than anything else in the classroom is create memorable learning experiences, to create stories with our students so that when they leave their times in our classrooms, when they leave school, they don't just remember a bunch of instances that they were a part of or a bunch of a collection of information that they absorbed during it. They remember stories that they were a part of. And the setting has to allow those stories to unfold. And so if students are doing work that's very specific, that, that requires certain space, we have to create space that allows that to happen. You know, my students once did a project where they created these tools that they presented to an actual social work agency that at the end of their presentations, the social work agency chose certain products, tools that the students made to actually use in their programs. Like, so my students were creating authentic pieces of work as part of this project to serve clients, people, community members that were a part of this social work agency. And so my students during this project were not just history English students. These students were creators. They were graphic designers. They were social workers. They were podcast recorders. They were videographers. They were video editors. They were artists. They had all of these different occupations on top of being students. And so therefore, there had to be a setting that met the needs of that occupation. I like to think of it as an occupational setting. As I'm designing a learning experience like that, I'm asking, okay, what kind of space do my students need? What do they need to be successful in the work that they're actually doing in this project? And I think that's a question we can always ask ourselves as we think about our classrooms. What kind of space do my students need to actually accomplish the work I want them to accomplish? If one of my goals is for them to become better collaborators, does this, the alignment of their seats, does the placement of their desks, does, does the layout of my room support that? Does it help them become better at collaborating? If I am just well aware that I have students who need space, who become overstimulated by, by too many letters on the wall or too many colors, or too much artwork, maybe that causes me to look at the walls of my classroom and ask like, okay, maybe there's too much going on here. Maybe this is overstimulating for some of my students who may be neurodivergent or, or, or overload on too much stimulation. Maybe I need to take some of this off of the walls. You know, there's another uh, phrase, it's called biophilic uh, design. It's all about having color schemes and textures that are based on nature because there's all this research that shows that, that we are calmer and we learn better in spaces that resemble nature in that way. And so maybe if I want a classroom that's calm, that, that, that feels comfortable in the learning environment, when I know that my students will learn better and work better together when they are in an environment, an atmosphere that has some of these design features to it, 
maybe that makes us think like, okay, maybe we can ask if we can paint that wall a dark green, or maybe, uh, you know, maybe some of the artwork we put on the walls aren't just going to be super bright, but actually resemble the colors that are found in nature. Maybe that can benefit my students. It's about creating a setting that matches the story. And I think this is something we can all do now. I said a moment ago, I talked about flexible seating and maybe you're listening to this and you're saying, yes, I love that. I get it. I wish I, I, I would love to have a classroom where my chairs just move all around. I would love it if a uh, steel case furniture would come in and just outfit all of the classrooms in my school so that they can be flexible and we can make everything adjust really, really quickly. But the desks in my classroom were there when I was a kid, right? Like are my students are sitting at desks that their grandparents took gum under when they were in high school years and years before, right? Like a lot of it's easy to say, yeah, we all need flexible seating. But then there's also the reality that a lot of us have desks and tables that are not as easily movable or not updated. And you wish they were, but they're not. And, and they haven't been funded or they haven't been provided or they haven't been prioritized. And so what do I do? Because here's the reality, it, it can be really challenging to move a 30 pound desk, or how about 30 30 pound desks in the middle of class to do that on a, on a tight short time frame. You know, maybe you have your students for 55 minutes a day and you know that uh, there's just not a whole lot of time to move things around. Or you know that if you wanna put your class in a certain orientation, it's gonna eat up half of your planning period or your entire planning period to move everything around and you don't have that extra time to spare. So what do you do about that? Well, one, I think we need to keep advocating for more updated flexible seating. I don't care where it's sold from. I don't get any uh, uh, boost to talk about this kind of thing. I, d I do think we need to continue to advocate for chairs and tables that have wheels on them. Um, but I think another thing we can do is have students be a part of the process of re reorienting rooms. One thing I've always done is I, I've created five different orientations for how the room can look. And so I've got one orientation where the desks are set up in a horseshoe, and I find this really helpful it's kind of like a semicircle of desks and there's only like two or three layers of desks so I set we set up the room in a horseshoe when I'm lecturing we put it in groups when we're doing collaborative work we have a certain orientation for when we do discussions we have it in rows so I have these five different orientations and I label each of them one two three four and five and so if it's at the beginning of the day and I know that we're gonna have the group orientation which might be labeled number three for the rest of that day in all of my classes I'll say to that first class all right everybody I'm going to put up on the board uh, number three. We are going to move the room to that. And I don't know, just using Photoshop, um, I've just created what that actually looks like in the room where all the desks look in a certain way and tables are in certain spots. I'll put it up on the screen. I'll say, okay, here we go. We're going to do orientation three. Let's come back together in five minutes when the room is set up. Ready, go. And it does take five minutes but then the students do all of that work for me. And I'm just there to direct it. And if students aren't sure where a desk load goes, they look up at the screen and they see what it's supposed to look like and they can continue to work. And I have found this to be so successful. It saves me time during planning and students are getting to be a part of what the room looks like. And let's just be honest, they're getting to do some of the physical work that I would have to do all by myself. But when you have 25, 30 students doing it, it goes so much faster and it's not that much work for everybody. Everybody's just responsible for moving their chair and they can work as a team to move their table and it makes the room actually take shape. And this works with a flexible classroom where there's chairs um, with wheels on them and tables with wheels on them. 
but I've also found in classrooms that I've worked in that are not flexible or not mobile, it still works, it still works well because students are all working as a team. There's 25 of them that are helping doing the heavy lifting of moving the tables and chairs. And so, I mean, this might not work with really, really young students, but I think uh, most age students can, can pick up a table if they do it as a team and they can make the space fit what you want to actually happen. And so I just, I think as we continue to move forward and we continue to dream up new ways to engage students and, and find ways to make our classroom successful, one of the things we have to think about is how do I want my classroom space to be absolutely effective for students? How can I maximize the room that I have and the furniture that I've been given to really help make learning engaging for students? Because here's the thing, there are traditional methods and I will continue to say this every time we talk about what needs to change and move, there are traditional things that still work. So let's not get rid of them, but let's also expand on what we do. If our rooms are always in rows, that would make me wonder, is the learning always just demanding rows? Or does the learning experience demand other things and maybe it's time we start adapting and shifting to meet the needs of those experiences so that we can ultimately meet the needs of our students. So this has been so good to be back in the podcast room. Such a joy to get to share with you. If you enjoyed this episode or if it got you thinking a little bit, I would love it if you would share it with anybody else who might be interested. Um, feel free to tweet it out or send it on Facebook and please tag me and let me know that you are listening. Also, feel free to leave a review. I love to get your feedback and, and hear things that you're liking about it so I can keep doing those things on the podcast. But I also love your constructive criticism, things that you would like to see be different on here, or um, even suggestions. What would you like me to talk about? Feel free to let me know. You can shoot me an email. You can go to my website at trevormuir.com or just leave your suggestions in a review on iTunes. And uh, I would love to just read them. And uh, what a joy it is to get to connect with you. So thanks for listening to the Epic Classroom podcast today. Uh, and ultimately, thank you for the work you do to make learning engaging and memorable and epic for your students. See you next time.